Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is Doug Parsons with America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's episode, we have a very exciting guest, Samantha Montano, who's a disasterologist. We're going to talk about all the cool opportunities that exist with the Adaptation Universe and the Emergency Management Universe. Don't forget to visit the website at americadapts.org and consider emailing me at americadapts at gmail.com if you have ideas for guests or just general feedback. Stick around. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Just before we get started, I wanted to make you aware of a really cool podcast called Everyday Superhumans. As you know, there's a bunch of podcasts out there, and all of you are looking for new, great content to listen to. And for those who have subscribed to America Adapts, thank you. But if you're looking for additional podcasts to listen to, I highly recommend this. It's Everyday Superhumans, and I'm going to let the owners of the site talk about what their show is about. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Caroline. And, and together, together, we're Everyday, everyday superhumans. superhumans. Well, actually, we aren't superhumans. The real Everyday Superhumans are those passionate people who get out there and make their dream a reality, all the while making a positive change along the way. And these folks can range anywhere from former Peace Corps volunteers who are now saving Louisiana's wetlands. This is hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> like in my head. I'm like, how did I get here? <laughs> to an average Joe whose love for beer led to a craft beer revolution in his hometown. It was going to be a weekend thing, but it blew up so quickly, it just <laughs> right. became a full-time thing. <laughs> and even a mother of three who runs her own business and charity. How do you balance all this out? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Together, we showcase the challenges they had to overcome. Be prepared for harder work and less sleep. To the secrets of getting things done. Everything I do, I have partners in crime along with the light-hearted side of making things happen don't worry about your dishes <laughs> go and do stuff we all have the ability to be superhuman every day we're just here to show you how and remember not every hero has to fly so grab your cape and let's go be sure to download everyday superhumans on itunes google play or your favorite podcasting app Hi, everyone. Welcome to America Daps, the climate change podcast. On today's podcast, I have Samantha Montano. Hi, Samantha. How are you? Good. How are you? Great. Thanks for being on. And so you're in North Dakota right now, right? I am. Samantha is a doctoral student in emergency management at the Center for Emergency Management, Education, and Research at North Dakota State University. Is there anything additional you want to add to that? Nope. That captures it. Okay. So just for listeners to get some background... Samantha wrote this fantastic article for Vox Magazine. It's an online media. It's one of these big uh, online uh, – what, what do you even call these things? It's uh, solely online. It's just an online uh, – I've been calling it an online news source when I explain it to people. Okay, online news source. It's relatively new, but it's, it's like in the vein of Huffington Post and Salon. And I saw your article, and I'm just going to read it here, and I'm going to have uh, – information from our conversation just on my website so people can follow it but it's just the louisiana floods are devastating and climate change will bring more like them we're not ready so that kind of provocative we're not ready <laughs> samantha blogs at a site called disasterology you know i'm not even pronouncing it right could you do it for me please sure yeah no it's disasterology uh the url is 
disaster-ology. So as a setup to this conversation, I, I was thinking about that title, and you, you have a little bit of bio information on your website. And being in adaptation and climate change, people like to avoid us at like cocktail hours and such. And I, and I was thinking that you refer to yourself as a disasterologist. And I was thinking like, okay, you're on the bus and you're talking to someone and you introduce yourself as that. What do you say to them what you do? Well, so I actually came up and started using the word disasterology uh, as a result of telling people that I study emergency management and people not having any idea what that is. I usually get a lot of, so you work for FEMA or you're a firefighter. And that doesn't quite capture what I do personally, although that those are aspects of emergency management. So I started using the term disasterology because I think it it's kind of a quicker way for people to get an idea of what I'm doing. It's studying disasters. So it usually leads to interesting conversations. It's a good conversation starter. No, it's a great name. And again, I don't know what your family thinks of that as they kind of introduce you, but it is a conversation starter. So I certainly appreciate it. In the adaptation field, it's so dry and boring, but you are, you, you start off well. So Samantha, I kind of want to, when I first approached you, I taught, I brought up the, you know, what adaptation is and the emergency management universe isn't necessarily talking with the adaptation universe. And we, we kind of went back and forth a little bit on what we might be able to talk about. And so I kind of broke down what I wanted to accomplish in this podcast. And, you know, partly it's just your background, your field. And then we kind of jump in at the, the latter half and talk about how those two universes might be able to collaborate or communicate with each other a bit more. Sure. You know, from your bio, you mentioned that you got started in this field by going down to Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. Is, is that right? Yeah. So I actually moved to New Orleans right after Katrina to do my undergraduate work at Loyola University in New Orleans. Um, and so I got there right in the midst of, of the recovery, um, right as it was getting started, and I kind of just quickly got tied into the nonprofit scene in New Orleans. And it was really a time of a lot of people doing what I did, moving from across the country to New Orleans to participate in the rebuilding efforts. And so I was doing everything while I was in school from rebuilding homes on weekend to getting involved with some environmental activism things. And then while I was there, the BP oil disaster happened close by. And so I spent time there doing community activism work and some research. Uh, and then my senior year of college, I went up to Joplin following their tornado and again, helped with some of the recovery work there. And essentially, in being involved in those different disasters, and they were all very different in terms of size and scale and the, you know, the situation and what the actual hazards were. But basically, it just made me really interested in specifically the recovery from disasters, because I saw how in each community, even though there were all these differences, there were also a lot of similarities that I was seeing. And it seemed like that there was a lot of work to be done in terms of coming up with ways to make recovery go better than it is going currently or was going at the time. And so that kind of got me interested in this idea of emergency management and kind of led me down the path to grad school. So you're at North Dakota State. Obviously, it has a program that you're interested in. Why, why would a university like North Dakota have such a program? Yeah, people do think it's a little random. Well, Fargo does have uh, some 
some hazards. We're right on the Red <laughs> River. Uh, so we have a flooding situation going on here. But really, the program here is the oldest in the country uh, for the grad school. And it's I personally, maybe I'm biased. I think it's one of the better ones in the country. So it was worth it for me to to move to the frigid north. <laughs> well, that must have been a bit of culture shock going from New Orleans up oh my to. Goodness, the... It was. <laughs> Can you get a good beignet anywhere up there? <laughs> no, you cannot. So I, I'm curious. So you were there just post Katrina, and you know you're interested in the recovery part of this process, were they doing it right? What, what was it like on the ground? I just imagine these giant checks coming from the federal government and they're there to help people. But in some of your writing, you talk about the sort of the post phase and where they, the media kind of ignores everything. But I mean, what would you give like just and go into it? But I mean, just your sort of gut grade on like the Katrina sort of the recovery. It, was it good? Was it bad? I mean, what, what what's your take on it? So, I mean, in general, bad, but I... <sighs> I don't necessarily have a community that's gone through a disaster where I would point to their recovery process and go, mm. that was a great recovery. The reality is, is that most communities do recover overall. Obviously, certain people don't and certain businesses don't come back and communities can change uh, through that recovery process. But in general, the majority of communities do come back from disaster. So, I mean, it really is depending on how you're measuring recovery and what you view as being a good or bad recovery. I think that New Orleans and the Katrina recovery is a little challenging because it was such a large event that it in some ways stands out as being kind of unique. Um, and the scale at which recovery was going on was so massive as compared to, you know, kind of your everyday disaster that you might see. So it, it's a little challenging to to make judgments on that recovery process. But overall, I think anybody that was involved in or is still currently involved in the recovery of New Orleans would definitely say there were things that could have been done better or more efficiently or more effectively. But yeah, it was just, and I mean, it still is to an extent in certain areas. It was just a really interesting time of a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds coming together. And there was just, you know, you're, you're looking at a city that was 80% underwater. I mean, everything had to be rebuilt. There wasn't, you know, the education system, the healthcare system, like everything needed to be rebuilt. So there was no lack of tasks to be done. And there was a lot of money coming in, especially right after Katrina. You know, now there are still nonprofits uh, in certain neighborhoods, specifically the Lower Ninth Ward, that are actively doing rebuilding work in those communities. And they, you know, no longer have a lot of money coming in. That's definitely those big checks, as you said, definitely have stopped um, coming in. But well, did after deep water, did I, I know Louisiana as a state uh, w was part of uh, the the settlement, but was New Orleans itself? Were they sort of like you know? There's all sorts of grant money that came out of that. And there's the BP settlement, but was New Orleans at all part of trying? And I, the reason I ask is I was at in Florida at the time, and so the whole state just geared up. You know, every state agency was supposed to write sort of management plans on what would you do with funding. And, you know, the, the cynic in me is like, there's some really nice facilities now being built based on some of that funding. And did it go to the right areas? And I'm just curious what happened over in Louisiana and New Orleans. I do know that there were 
even if they were just nonprofits that were operating within the city, I know there was some money that has gone in. I don't have the impression that it was a significant amount of money to the city itself, though. It is kind of the weird fund, the BP fund. And it's still, I mean, they're still paying out down there, but a lot of it's toward natural resources and, it, you know, to be eligible for it, it's it's a little odd. So anyway, I was just curious because, you know, you, you worked somewhat on that. The, the Vox article, I'm, you can't get away from Louisiana. It's just, it's a mag- <laughs> magnet for natural disasters. And I encourage people to, to read that article and that's why I contacted you. And you walk through the whole emergency management system, what's happening down in Louisiana and it was this if people don't remember because maybe it didn't get the media coverage sort of like the point that you made is that there was the you know what how about you walk uh me through the sort of that rain event that occurred sure so yeah i think you were about to start mentioning there wasn't a lot of media coverage of this flooding that happened in louisiana about a month ago and it was kind of that lack of media coverage for it that was the impetus for that box article so basically what happened was i saw the weather report for Louisiana. I saw some warnings from some meteorologists on Twitter that I tend to trust. Um, And they were using terms like catastrophic flooding, which is not a term that they usually throw around too much. So I started paying attention to it. I also, having lived in New Orleans for a while, I have a lot of friends in the Baton Rouge area. um, And I was seeing just, you know, from Facebook that they weren't reacting to the fact that there was this catastrophic flooding heading their way. Um, And again, on Twitter, I wasn't seeing it trend or anything like that. And so those were kind of some just initial indications to me that maybe people weren't really paying attention to this as much as they should. Um, I also wasn't seeing a ton of reaction from just the broader emergency management community online. Usually if there's a hurricane or something coming towards the U.S., you know, the emergency management community starts sharing articles about it, just basic things like that. But again, I wasn't seeing it happening. From my perspective, I was basically seeing that there was a situation where there was a serious hazard, in other words, this rainstorm, and it seemed that people weren't taking these preparatory actions that we would usually want them to be taking. So whether it was evacuating or even just moving their cars to higher ground, I wasn't seeing this really happening on on a large scale. Immediately in my mind, just from my experience, I know, okay, well, this means that there's going to be a massive search and rescue operation if people aren't evacuating. It's over such a widespread area. So this means there's going to need to be kind of this massive response of sheltering operations starting getting up and running. And I also kind of thought more broadly about the situational context. So this area of Louisiana, I just happened to know, hadn't really dealt with flooding, especially to this extreme. So they probably weren't expecting this or there wasn't a precedent for them to say, well, last time it flooded, it was only two feet so we can stay up on our second floor. You know, that precedent wasn't really there. I did kind of have one glimmer of hope watching it, and this actually did end up playing out, and that was that a lot of these people that were in this area were the people who had volunteered and worked and hosted evacuees after Katrina. So even if they themselves had never experienced a significant amount of flooding, they probably had some previous disaster experience, even if it was just in a volunteering capacity. So Essentially, this was telling me that they would know how to respond and that they would be active. And just more broadly speaking in disasters, we see that, you know, the survivors of disasters themselves are usually the first responders. They're the people who do search and rescue. They 
organize themselves to help their community before outside help can arrive and kind of back them up. I also started thinking ahead to the recovery even before the full extent of the rainstorm had really happened. And that's where I saw kind of the bigger problem, which I think is sometimes hard for people to think of as the rebuilding and the what comes after is being a bigger problem than the response, because obviously in response, you're doing the life-saving measures, which are obviously very important. But response is usually speaking a, a pretty short time period. You're talking, you know, anywhere from a few hours to a few days to a few weeks. Sometimes it'll be a little longer, but the recovery is what can last for years, if not decades. And so I, I guess I go over this in the Vox article, but I essentially had an idea that probably not a lot of people had flood insurance in that area because it hadn't flooded before and there wasn't requirements for them to have it. So this basically means that they're going to be responsible for paying for their own recovery, which is expensive, to put it simply. You know, this isn't necessarily a wealthy area. Most people don't have enough cash on hand to just rebuild their entire home, right? right. The federal government has a, a max of giving $33,000 to individuals and households looking to rebuild, but on average um, in events, that's much lower. So that's not going to get you very far, especially when you think about it's not just rebuilding your home, but it's also replacing all the contents of your home, replacing your car, taking time off work, loss of wages. You all of a sudden start adding up a lot of expenses. If you stayed at a hotel while you're evacuated, right, these expenses really do start adding up. And so essentially that left us with a situation where, you know, these people are going to be looking towards nonprofits for help in the recovery. I'm in the middle of writing my dissertation right now on flooding that has happened this year in the Houston area, smaller scale than the Louisiana flooding, but a disaster nonetheless. And in that process of doing my dissertation, I've been talking to several national disaster nonprofits, all related to Houston, but some of what they had told me I assumed would be applicable in Louisiana, and that has so far been the case, is that essentially these nonprofits are kind of at capacity. They're just dealing with a lot of recoveries right now, South Carolina, West Virginia, Detroit, these multiple floods in Texas, and now this massive flood in Louisiana. And those are just the floods, let alone wildfires and tornadoes and what else. You know, they just, they're low on money. They're low on volunteers. They, you know, like nonprofits do, they've put their heads down and they've pushed through. Um, but they're not in this great situation. Uh, some of them are calling this, this kind of donation and volunteer fatigue. And so, Essentially, I'm sitting here in North Dakota, all the way in my office, watching this unfold <laughs> on social media and just being like, oh, no, <laughs> right? So I'm seeing this all unfold and knowing how how much of a struggle this is going to be for this area. And so then on top of that, I go you know, to CNN's homepage and nothing, it's not even mentioned. And you go to Fox, not mentioned. You go to MSNBC, not mentioned. And it's like, what is going on? This is massive. Why are they not covering this? And it took them days. It took them like four or five days. The New York Times kind of gave a semi-apology for not covering it. Like, it was, it's crazy that they didn't cover this. 
there were kind of some theories floating around as to why they didn't cover it. Some were saying it was just they were busy with the election and the Olympics were going on at the time. Some were hypothesizing that it was because it wasn't a named storm. I kind of pushed back on that one. You know, wildfires don't have names. Earthquakes don't have names. We cover those. Some people were saying maybe it was just a fatigue when it came to Louisiana and disasters, which if that's the case, I'm concerned about that because we're headed down a road in which Louisiana will only be having more disasters, not less. I have a bit of an online presence when it comes to disasters. And so I got a little feisty on Twitter. And (laughs) uh, long story short, through some Twitter connections, I got linked up with Vox. And I was able to publish that article that kind of addressed a lot of these issues. Well, that was great. That was uh, a lot of details. I just did not know. You know, I actually followed it pretty well myself. You know, I follow the news and such, and it was a weird storm event. I mean, you heard initially about, okay, look at all this rain, but it wasn't, like you said, up to the level of this catastrophe. And what I found interesting, and I would probably have to go back and if this is just more anecdotal, but, you know, everyone was kind of jumping on, and I'm talking about like meteorologists, like the climate change um folks that I follow is just like tying how unusual this rain event is. And it seemed like they were making those connections even before the storm like really truly unfolded. It was odd. Like you were getting this, this is a one in a 500 year event, one in a thousand year event. And you're like, oh, okay, this is sort of that post storm coverage. And yet each day there would be like a new additional detail that this thing is still going on. It was just an odd storm to follow. And yet, like you said, the media... I mean, I'm not, I don't know enough about the media, what's a good grade for him, but it, it was a weird, a weird, I guess, event that unfolded. Yeah. I mean, I'll grade them. They got an F on that, just <laughs> flat out. I don't, yeah, it's so strange. I mean, with hurricanes, you know, I guess the media tends to maybe cover those a little bit better because they have warning and time to get there. And, you know, meteorologists love to go stand in the ocean as hurricanes approach. And it's all very dramatic, but it really doesn't make sense to me. I still don't really have a a reason or a single reason I can point to, to them not covering it. I mean, there were, you know, helicopters, search and rescue things going on. It wasn't like there weren't storylines or dramatic imagery for them to pick up, which, you know, when you're in media, that matters. Um, You know, those things were all there. Yeah, I don't know. It was there. There was a breakdown in communication between the media and then what was happening on the ground. And it's not clear to me where that happened. Obviously, the local media was doing a really great job of covering it. The advocate in Baton Rouge has been really, really great at covering it. But it was really the, the national media that wasn't there. And what the reason I I got so upset about the media not covering it, besides just like morally, they should probably be covering this like major disaster, is that when the media doesn't cover an event like this, you see a drop in donations hmm. for the that community, whether it's going to nonprofits or going through a fund that's set up through the state or through the local governments there. Right. Like these nonprofits are already struggling with donations. And if you're not going to have the media cover it, you're not going to have those donations coming in across the United States. Some very initial numbers that I saw from the Red Cross and these may have have changed by now. But going back a week or so, I saw that the Red Cross had raised seven point eight million for Louisiana and they had spent somewhere around 30 or 40 million. 
So there, you know, there's a gap here that's happening. And that, if that's the Red Cross, the known disaster organization, then what does that say about the smaller nonprofits and the nonprofits that come in in the recovery when even less people are paying attention to it? Well, it seems like one of the biggest media events that came out of that storm was just the sort of, you know, okay, Donald Trump went to visit Hillary Clinton and Obama took forever to go. And that in itself generated all this media attention versus, you know, some of the actual storm. Yeah. Not the media's finest hour. And I, I, you know, I want to dig into the, the story a little bit, just that you have recommendations in it. And I'm just curious, you were writing that as the storm unfolded and, you know, you were talking about how is this region going to be able to sort of deal with these problems. And I think you've alluded to it in some of the things that you've talked about. But you talk in, in your article, you talk about these steps that these communities should take. And like, I'm going to read some of these. So I don't screw these up. Like individuals and households need to buy hazard insurance. Communities must create disaster plans in advance and tell the local community about their hazard risk. If I if someone asked me, well, yeah, every city has a disaster plan. I guess that's not accurate. Right. So at a city level, yeah. So at a city level, you know, they'll have a response plan. So they'll there there will be a plan in place through the city or the county's emergency management office for essentially how they're going to deal with response. So again, those life saving measures, um, immediate sheltering, food and water, those just very basic uh, life saving measures. But then when you look at the recovery, so how are we going to deal with debris removal? How are we going to restore lifelines and utilities? How are we going to temporary, temporarily house people while they fix their homes? How are we going to get those homes fixed? How are we going to bring businesses back and help them recover? How are we going to help the local government get back on its feet? All of those aspects would fall into what I would call a recovery plan. And I um, an alarmingly low number of local governments across the United States actually have recovery plans. That ends up becoming a challenge in recovery because you're having to kind of improvise and come up with these plans while you're standing in the middle of the disaster, right? You don't want to be standing amongst piles of debris while simultaneously figuring out where the heck you're going to put all this stuff and how it's going to get there and how you're going to communicate with people about what can be thrown out in certain ways and what are you going to recycle? What are you just going to trash? Like, how, right. There's a lot that goes into this. And if you're, you're not doing that planning in advance, then after the disaster, that's where we start to see some of the, the problems start to multiply really quickly. You bring in climate change as part of this. And I think the, the and please, you know, correct me where I'm wrong, but, the point of bringing climate change is like we have these natural disasters. They're only going to increase as we head into this sort of new world where storm events are just likely to increase and we're not prepared for it. And is that something that you're, you're, you're studying right now? Is climate change the models of the future? Is that part of what you, you're, you're studying now? Or is this just, you know, it's, it's almost like a given kind of thing. That's why you were talking about it. Yeah. So Climate change isn't something that I explicitly study, but at the same time, it's kind of the overarching assumption of a lot of what I study. So, you know, disasters are not new. Natural hazards are not new. Flooding is not new. Droughts are not new. All of the the hazards that are being made worse from climate change are not necessarily new. How we manage those hazards, again, isn't necessarily new. You know, the way you handle a flood in a non-climate changed 
world and the way you handle a flood in a climate changed world, I don't necessarily know that there's a whole lot of differences there once you're actually on the ground dealing with it. Where climate change for me becomes more of an issue is that there are going to just be more hazard events. They're going to increase in intensity. The way that those hazard events interact with one another may be different. And just how many are happening simultaneously, I think, is going to be different. I think a lot of times when we talk about climate change, people or the average person kind of has this vision of this like apocalyptic future where the Statue of Liberty is like fallen over into the water. (laughs) And while that may one day happen, we're going to be dealing with the impacts of climate change way before then. We're dealing with them now. And so before we can even get to New York City being completely destroyed or whatever the, you know, disaster movie scenario is, we have, there's a lot that's going to happen between then and now. And that's kind of more what I'm, I'm focusing on and kind of how, you know, how this emergency management system that we have, how are we going to make it function when you have a lot of disasters happening at once across the country? How is it going to be able to handle all of that pressure? Well, this is the second part of the discussion I want to have is just how emergency management relates to adaptation. And uh, just I, I don't know how you kind of look at the adaptation field. I look at it as, you know, it's real, it's an emerging field. You know, it's bits and pieces of other things. But I've been doing it for, you know, 15 years. But it's really just accelerated in the last five, ten years. And I'm just very interested in what you do. And when I was in Florida, you know, we were trying to think how do you develop adaptation policies. And one of the ideas we kind of kicked around is that you look – you know, how do you get communities to think about adaptation? And I, in Florida, because of the hurricanes, there's a lot of hurricane planning. And I looked at climate change as sort of like, okay, what if people just visualized it more as this kind of slow-moving hurricane? How are you going to plan to protect these communities? And it's, it's not a perfect equation, but it's more about, like, how do you get communities to take this issue seriously? And, I, you know, I'm curious, like, we, you just mentioned a little bit of it, but even, in, you know, the curricula or in emergency management, is it climate change? Is it more just, okay, this is going to create more storms in the future? Or are you getting into like scenario planning like, okay, 50 years from now, 75 years from now, even though these storm events are happening today and we have to create responses today, you know, you can come up with policies that are going to influence, let's say, even the recovery period. I mean, are those – is that coursework coming up in your field? So uh, the answer is kind of yes and no. I – would maybe I'm trying to think of the best way of explaining this. So emergency management covers these four, we call them the four phases of emergency management. So we have preparedness, uh, which is when you're doing things far in advance of a disaster to help just ready yourself for the response and then also for the recovery. So things like stockpiling supplies, making evacuation plans, basic things like that. And then you have the response, which I've talked about those life-saving measures. That's Response is where the majority of the attention is from researchers to practitioners to the government. That's primarily and for the history of emergency management has primarily been where the focus has been. Then you have recovery, which is, again, this restoring, rebuilding and reshaping time period where there's been less attention. And then you have mitigation. And this is where I 
the the adaptation piece kind of fitting in in around here. So in emergency management, when we say mitigation, we're referring to things that are sustained actions to minimize or eliminate hazards and their impacts. So we're talking about raising homes and floodways. We're talking about land use policies, uh, insurance, those types of things. The problem in emergency management, right? So we've been studying mitigation for a while. We have a pretty good idea about when mitigation does and does not work or in a, in, does not work in terms of implementing mitigation measures in our communities. So when people talk about recovery, they often talk about, oh, there's this window of opportunity that opens up during recovery. Your community is already destroyed. Let's take this as an opportunity to implement some of these mitigation measures so that this same scenario doesn't happen again, but also so that we can just have a better community. And people talk about resilience and creating sustainability and they bring all these buzzwords, right? Adaptation gets thrown in here too, from my, from what I can tell. But the reality is, is that we have research that says that, yeah, sure, this happens in some instances and you can point to certain case studies of it happening, but Largely speaking, people are not implementing mitigation after disasters in their communities. It's not happening. But the problem here is that mitigation isn't necessarily happening before disasters either. It is, again, in some communities for sure. But it it's not necessarily happening as widespread as as you might think it's happening. I am very curious in talking to other people who are in the adaptation field about this and seeing kind of what their perspectives are. It seems to me that there is overlap. I don't know if one encompasses another. I'm not totally clear, to be honest, on that relationship. But it seems like we're kind of doing the same thing here. And it seems like there's research or practical experience that's useful to one another. And I think that we're moving towards a scenario where that communication is going to start happening more. It's not clear to me to the extent to which it's already happening. Oh, I totally recommend, you know, there's a national adaptation forum happening next year and you and some adaptation folks should do a panel together and have this conversation. I totally recommend that. Um, maybe I'll put you in touch with some folks after this. Well, yeah. you know, the the wording too, I think uh, our, our two universities need to talk a bit more and you, you just described mitigation. And yeah. so it's become pretty common now in the climate change universe is mitigation is associated with carbon emissions and right. reduction. And so in your field, it's it's a much different thing. That in itself starts you off in a hole because when you talk mitigation, I'm like, oh, okay, what's the carbon footprint going to be associated? It's not – and I get what you're saying, but that is a, a, a big hole. And that four-step process, and I think, you know, adaptation professionals out there listening, I think there's a, that's a model to, to learn a lot from and I think, you know, could replicate some things. And I, and I have colleagues that, you know, work for – GSA and these are groups that have they're going to have to climate proof buildings and such and could learn from this. But I when I emailed you one of the topics I brought up is this whole idea of adaptation versus resilience. There's this kind of semantic debate and I think your universe is more on the resilience side. Let's climate now I'm not saying that you're recommending this but like let's climate proof everything. Let's build the seawalls, let's build levees and then we're going to be better prepared for the next storm whereas broader adaptation universe when we might need to do that in some areas but in other areas we might need to let it go or we're not going to keep out sea level rise and is that fundamentally at odds with the emergency management universe i mean no i I don't think it is 
I mean, I, I think there are certain people in emergency management who, who might say that's at odds, but I don't think overall doing buyouts and relocating communities as well within something that we would consider in emergency management and in mitigation. Well, one of the more provocative things is just after Katrina, you know, you talk to climate change people, they're like, okay, well, they just need to abandon that city anyway. That's not that helpful, but it sort of understand where they're coming from. And, you know, that those are sort of extreme situations. Like a hurricane hits Miami as well. Miami in 50 years is going to be under, you know, three feet of sea level, uh, sea level rise. And so, that, that makes things tricky as you pl- look at those kind of time frames. Yeah, I think talking about relocation is obviously really hard. People don't want to relocate, to put it simply. I'm of the mindset that kind of the local community rules, what they want to do is kind of needs to be given a greater weight than what everybody else thinks they should do. The people of New Orleans wanted to rebuild, and they did, or they are working on it. And I don't think that that was necessarily a bad decision. I think it was one decision of several. I think it's also really difficult to talk about moving entire communities, especially because it, you know, anywhere you move to is going to have hazards, right? Flooding can happen anywhere. So spending, you know, moving these communities. Yeah, some places are more hazardous than others. Yes, Miami is headed down a tricky road here, for sure. (laughs) Um, I don't, you know, at some point, yes, in the future, I suspect that certain communities and certain cities do need to move. I don't know that it's kind of hard for me to even envision that we don't move entire cities in America, we don't really have a precedent for that happening. And, you know, even just the expense of moving an entire city, I, I mean, it's astronomical. And I mean, I think if you look at the communities in Alaska, and even there's a community in Southeast Louisiana that just got the okay from the federal government to start the relocation process, the amount of money that the federal government is spending to move them is wild. And to see that happening on a large scale, I just, I don't know how that's going to happen. I guess it will have to at a certain point, but. Well, I guess economists could look, okay, it costs a lot to move them, but then, okay, the emergency response to it maybe doesn't cost as much then, but if you say factor in, it's going to happen multiple times, which one's cheaper? Well, in the adaptation universe, there's people aren't being completely honest that, you know, one of the comments I had was just, I look at emergency management as this is sort of, you know, very active, reactive, um, pro, these are all buzzwords, but proactive kind of like feel, whereas adaptation in a lot of ways is very passive. And we have the luxury because even though there are climate change impacts happening today, a lot of the discussions are in the future and we want people to respond to these future threats, but it isn't equivalent to like a tornado just blowing through and then you're walking through the rubble you know it's it makes it more challenging to convince people to invest in adaptation right well i think and that's maybe a question that i have for the adaptation community is it seems like from what i what you've said that the adaptation community is looking to be more proactive when it it comes to adapting to climate change and not necessarily waiting for the disaster to happen before acting. And that's great. I like philosophically support that, of course. But 
our the U.S. has a very clear history here. We are reactive when it comes to emergency management and dealing with natural hazards. The entire emergency management system has really been built in a reactive way, not a proactive way. And so I get a little nervous about putting kind of, I don't want to say all of our eggs in one basket, but to kind of lean so heavily on this idea of, well, we're going to be proactive at a certain point, the light switch is going to go off and we're going to implement all of these adaptations and mitigations, whether they're structural or non-structural, because we just don't have a history of really doing that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in recovery personally and have been going back 10 years is just that that the focus hasn't been there. Like no matter how much you plan, no matter how much you prepare, no matter how much adaptation you do, you're still going to have disasters. You're still going to have communities that feel the impacts of climate change and the hazards associated with them. And so we do need to have a plan for recovery and we need to figure out how to do it and do it well and quickly. And we, I, I mean, I think that there is a real theoretical theoretical support that using recovery as an opportunity to introduce mitigation or adaptation or whatever you want to call it is a good time to do that. I think it's more about finding the ways to actually make that happen, which from the research, we have some idea, right? So mitigation tends to go better if you're involving the local community, if you have local leadership involved, if you're using local knowledge, if you have secured funding, obviously, if you are inviting the community to be a part of it, and you're explaining to them why it needs to happen, then it tends to go better. So I think it's, it's an issue of kind of looking at our history and then using that to, to implement mitigation or adaptation or or whatever it is. Well, you completely went where I wanted you. And and I think the recovery is that window within emergency management where adaptation can play a role. And I'd mentioned that there is a lack of funding. And so, you know, these storm events or the flooding events that when that money and funding comes in, you know, if the adaptation folks and, you know, it's happening already to a certain extent in some areas. But if that's their window, like you said, working with locals who are in a much, I guess, more receptive position to sort of say, okay, we want to think about these things going forward. And to me, that is a huge opportunity because a lot of the adaptation planning that's happening right now is truly voluntary. You know, you might have a, a progressive city government that's doing it, but it, it's not necessarily required. And if you start talking, you're not talking, like you take advantage and that sounds like something, <laughs> you know, devious, but that recovery part of planning is you just walked us through it. That That's a huge opportunity. And, and my question to you too is uh, in my last podcast we talked about the responses of the gulf area versus the response up in new england to you know hurricane sandy and so you know how these big storm events katrina sandy and then the the recovery period a lot of money came into both areas but this is again just might be my anecdotal sort of uh evaluation but there's all this push in New England toward resilience and adaptation planning. They took advantage of that opportunity, and you, you see these institutes, and you see these really cool projects that are happening, and I don't feel like I've heard as much about adaptation planning, and i taken off at post-Katrina, and I'm just wondering, is, is that true? Is it a cultural thing? Do you, do you have a sense? Do you feel like you kind of know enough about either storm event to sort of say that, okay, New England really embraced climate change planning afterwards? So I don't 
I, I don't know of any empirical evidence of this necessarily. I don't know that anybody has necessarily studied that quite yet. So Sandy is still only, what, five years into their recovery. That's the other thing with just studying recovery. You kind of have to wait <laughs> several years for things to actually happen before you can really actually study it. New Orleans definitely has included resilience in their recovery, that, that buzzword. I, again, I don't, who knows what resilience really means in practice, but um, <laughs> it's definitely been a buzzword that they use. The mayor uses it all the time. And, you know, they have implemented mitigation, you know, homes were raised, the flood control system has been worked on. They are, you know, working at finding ways to implement, oh, I'm blanking on the phrase, but the like green mitigation like, using, you know, open spaces to help with flooding. So, I mean, it, it's not to say they haven't done things in rebuilding homes. You know, the solar panels have been a big deal and uh, building sustainable homes. Again, whatever that means, they, you know, they've been doing that. I, I don't, I wouldn't be able to say which city has done that more or less, but I think New Orleans has definitely done some things for sure. They would be in a better position today if the exact same storm in that exact same scenario were to happen again, they would be in a better position or any storm, really. The other thing that you mentioned was, oh, implementing adaptation and recovery. Yeah, I mean, it's a window of opportunity, theoretically, to do that, whether it's actually happening or not. You know, it doesn't seem like it is. But I think it's important to remember that we, one, we tend to think of communities that have been impacted by disaster as a blank slate is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. And they aren't really. Those communities have deep cultural ties. The social networks in those communities are not necessarily destroyed by the disaster, right? There's, so you can't just come in and, you know, just change everything on people. They've already gone through this traumatic, disaster of losing everything and to come in and tell them that they have to rebuild a certain way or do certain things. It just doesn't go over very well. We're seeing that, which is completely understandable. I'm, I don't want to make it seem like they're crazy for, for thinking that way, but we're seeing this happen in Louisiana. I, I don't know how, I don't think this got widespread coverage in any way, but yesterday a ruling came down, I don't even know where, from the legal gods that be, that said 32,000 homes that were flooded in Louisiana do not need to be raised for them to be rebuilt. So right after the flood, there was a lot of confusion and conversations about what the requirements for rebuilding were going to be. This happens after disaster, confusion, and lack of clarity um, in terms of, of what those rebuilding rules are going to be. And in certain areas in Louisiana, they were saying, if you had X number of feet of water in your home, you're going to need to raise your home. Raising homes is expensive. People don't have that kind of money. They're already having to pay for this recovery. And on top of it, you're going to tell them they need to fork over tens of thousands of dollars to also raise their homes. It's not going to happen. There was a congressional subcommittee hearing uh, last week involving three of the local mayors, a representative from FEMA, the governor of Louisiana, and essentially the mayors were pleading with Congress to have these rules for raising homes waived because they said their communities, people weren't going to be able to build back if this was the requirement. It wasn't going to happen. And so yesterday that 
uh, decision came down that they weren't going to have to raise their homes. And obviously, that is just one example. If that's the future path we're going down, then we'll what is this adaptation that is going to happen? Individuals don't seem to be able to afford this on their own. And the federal government isn't putting the money forward for it to any real extent. So, you well, know, well, I don't know where that leaves us. Well, okay. So the cynic in me is saying, okay, we don't necessarily want them to build back. And if the system's set up in such a way that they're not getting enough money to do it or the laws are preventing them from doing this, they're naturally, and that's very, uh, it's not a very sympathetic position, I'm just, but I'm just saying yeah. how it's playing out right now, and it, it, it's almost a byproduct of all those rules and funding that, you know, you're, you're getting kind of a passive adaptation anyway. I mean, what that's, you think, sort of happening? Like, if people can't build, if this community can't build back, and you're trying to keep people out of this flood pain, I'm using this very simple example, it's like, all right, well, they want it to build, but it's too expensive or the, the, the rules are making it too difficult. And so, you know, your your modeler might say, all right, that's a good thing. We don't want them back in that floodplain. Yeah, sure. So that that's definitely an argument. I mean, here, of course, you run into issues of, well, which communities are being pushed out. They tend to be poor communities yeah, yeah, who can't afford it, who are living in vulnerable areas. Where are they going to move to if your house is flooded I mean, unless they're, you know, implementing a buyout program, even if you want to move, can you even afford to not rebuild, right? That's an issue for a lot of people. I mean, there's no clear solution here, as far as I can tell. I haven't heard any. (laughs) Well, yeah, and the adaptation universe, international especially, is like the, you know, developed world versus developing world that who's going to be at a disadvantage of trying to adjust to things. And it's going to play out here in the United States too. I like to, and I was going to give you advance notice on this, but I wasn't, I thought maybe you'd be able to do it on the fly based on what came out of our conversation. But I'd like to give listeners like some concrete steps going forward. And, you know, part of, I don't know if you'll do it, but I think of how can adaptation people truly try to plug into that recovery process. But if you could on the fly and if you can't do it, that's fine. But like top three, opportunities or recommendations you would give to the adaptation universe based on what you do? I mean, do you think you can do that? Sure. So I guess the first thing I would say, if you're an, in in practice and adaptation, I would reach out to wherever you work, the local emergency management office. Honestly, just kind of stop by, introduce yourself, talk to one another. Emergency managers, I think, tend to be tucked away into their offices a little bit. Go find them, <laughs> um, talk to them, introduce yourself. I that's I think kind of the key to the future of this is networking and meeting each other and hearing about what each other are doing and sharing resources and just kind of troubleshooting ideas as they come up. It seems like there's some logical overlap there. So if you haven't already done that, I would definitely recommend doing that. Also, I think I don't necessarily have a conference to recommend per se. Yeah, but I was going to ask that if there was like a, an event that they, the adaptation people should start going to. Well, so there's the FEMA Higher Education Conference, which 
uh, I don't know, that might be the best fit. It's something to look into at least. It happens in June every year, but that's for practitioners. And then also you get some researchers there as well. So that might be something to look into. The other thing is, honestly, I don't, following people on social media, I think, I know that sounds kind of lame, but it's kind of a low impact thing to do. Like I follow meteorologists and climatologists and adaptation people, all different people in different fields that are tangentially related to what I'm doing. And I think that's, you know, that's how you get the Vox article published and you find people like you doing this podcast, right? So I think that is an opportunity that people can take advantage of. The other thing is that there are some places uh, or like collaborative spaces that I think are starting to really come together. One I want to mention is the Center for Climate Adaptation Research, CCAR. This is a new endeavor. A colleague of mine is heading it up, and it's for researchers primarily to come together from all different disciplines, so emergency management, psychology, agriculture, wherever. Um, It's basically a research center for people to come together and just start doing that communication work. So again, this isn't a It's very early stages, but if you're a researcher and you want to get involved with that, I think you can just Google it. If not, I think you can find them on Twitter. I believe the handle is Climate Adapter. So that's something to look into. If you're looking for just more information on emergency management, I can recommend the Center for Emergency Management Education Research Facebook page. Again, you can just Google that. It should come up. But that is for practitioners and researchers and kind of creating a synergy between the two of them. Uh, So if you're interested in emergency management specific, I would recommend checking that out. So yeah, I don't know. Those are some ideas. Hey, I asked for top three. You gave me like top five. Awesome. (laughs) Perfect. So all those things, I'm going to follow up with you and I just, because I'm not taking notes. I I don't want to take notes during the middle of the conversation, but I have a kind of a home website for this podcast that I put for the show notes and I'll have all links and all those kind of things that you said so people can find those resources. So if people want to contact you, I'm assuming that's fine. I contacted you out of the blue. You have an email on your, your blog. So you're fine with people. If they have questions, they can contact you. Excellent. Well, any parting thoughts? I learned a lot, and I think there's this huge opportunity here. It's not a perfect fit, but I think I look at you guys as being sort of like real-time adapters, whereas you know the adaptation field is like, oh, they're, they're, they're kind of just a little bit off and bring real-time. So there's, I think, lots of opportunities here. Yeah. I think, I don't know, maybe a parting thought would just be that, you know, there isn't some master plan here, but I think that what we do have going for us is one that the emergency management system, despite any deficiencies in it, does exist. You know, we have a public health system. We have some infrastructure in place to handle what is coming or what is starting with climate change. And I think that where we really need to be spending a lot of our time and putting a lot of our energy is really to build the capacity of those existing systems and change them as necessary, of course. But I think we're going to do a much better job of this if we're all working together or I don't even know together is the right word, but if we're just working kind of side by side and at least have an awareness of each other and are kind of operating Somewhere in the realm of the same system, I I think that's where we're going to be successful moving forward. Great message. 
Well, thank you so much, Samantha, for coming on the podcast. It's been an illuminating conversation for me, so I, I, I appreciate it. Thank Good. you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. And everybody out there, this is America Daps, the climate change podcast. Everyone, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again for tuning in. That again was Samantha Montano, a disasterologist. I'm going to have all sorts of notes from the show on the website, americadaps.org, and all the links that she mentioned in the podcast. Next week, we have Davia Palmieri with the Association for Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Don't forget, if you haven't already subscribed to America Adapts, you can do it on iTunes, and there's any number of podcast directories out there that you could subscribe to, too. Please subscribe. This podcast will be in your inbox Monday morning every week. What a great opportunity. If you have ideas for guests, please contact me at americadapts at gmail.com. Or if you just have feedback, you have really cool insights to what we talked about, or you have ways to improve the show, again, email me at americadapts at gmail.com. And if you think you would be a great guest, you're doing some really cool adaptation work, again, contact me and I would be interested in having you on. So again, Davia Palmieri next week, and thanks again for listening in. This is America Daps, a climate change podcast. Until next time.